This podcast is supported by Evernorth Health Services. Tonight on 360, a two-person race, but for how much longer? With DeSantis out and Haley behind, the question now is, will New Hampshire's first-in-the-nation primary also be the last true challenge for Donald Trump until November? Also tonight, John King talks to voters he spoke with earlier in the campaigns to see if anything has changed their minds all over the map in New Hampshire. And breaking news tonight about a possible new ceasefire deal to bring Israel's hostages home that also could let Hamas's senior leaders get out of Gaza. Good evening. Thanks for joining us on the eve of what could be the last fire break for anyone in the Republican Party to stop the former president. That or perhaps the final confirmation that the party once again belongs solely to him. Four hours from now, voters in the tiny northern New Hampshire town of Dixville Notch will cast the first ballot to the first primary in campaign 24. It's not going to take long to count. There are just six people expected to vote there. About an hour from now in Laconia, the former president is going to hold his final rally in the state. That event, which comes a day after Ron DeSantis endorsed him and dropped out of the race, is going to feature three other former rivals who did the same, Doug Burgum, Vivek uh, Ramaswamy, and South Carolina Senator Tim Scott, who then Governor Nikki Haley appointed to the Senate. Also endorsing the former president, Governor Haley's own home district congresswoman, Nancy Mace. She did it today, even though in the wake of January 6th, she was saying things like this. Their lives would have been in danger to the two most precious people in my life. We need to hold the president accountable. Well, so much for that. As for Governor Haley, she says the race is, quote, not a coronation. And when asked about her viability as a candidate, she said, quote, a democracy is about giving people options. Joining us right now, New Hampshire Governor and Haley supporter Chris Sununu. Governor, appreciate you being with us. So do you believe Ambassador Haley needs to win tomorrow? No, this New Hampshire has never been a must win for Haley. If anything, it's, it's a must win for Trump. There were three things I think that we wanted to do, which was get it down to a two-person race. And she did. She wiped everyone else out of the race. Have a strong second. That's all but guaranteed. And build on the momentum coming out of Iowa. Going into her home state to go from 20% in Iowa, building on that here in New Hampshire, and then going into her home state with not next, the election isn't next week. It's like three or four weeks away. She's going to have a lot of time to go back and, and do what she's done many times before, which is win. She knows how to win in South Carolina. So there's a lot of opportunity there. Oh, and by the way, she could win. I mean, she's really within a stone's throw in some of these polls. So um, she's surging. I mean, all the wind is at her back. If you watch Trump's rallies, they got a few hundred people. Nikki's got 1,200 people. She's got energy. She's got all the, all the opportunity here to do very, very well. You were quoted over the weekend as saying, quote, I think Super, Super Tuesday is probably where you actually have to start winning states. Do you, is that actually yeah. what you believe? Yeah, of course. You, the, the, the Republican nominee shouldn't be picked just because of Iowa, New Hampshire and South Carolina. Right. You, all the other states have to get in here. I mean, the, the joke is that 56,000 people voted for Donald Trump in Iowa. 56,000 out of a population of three million. That's going to choose the Republican nominee. I don't think so. You got to let the process play out. The voters decide, not the media. This isn't a coronation, as Nikki said. This is letting the voters decide. It's not New Hampshire. Right. Mm. I mean, that's like saying, should, but, depends, but you're saying if Nikki that- wins Dixville, not should we just give the state to her? No, but no you're you saying, gotta let the voters play. Right, you're saying she can lose Iowa, lose New Hampshire, lose her home state of South Carolina on February 24th, and then go into Super Tuesday, which isn't until March 5th, and somehow upend the former president? I mean, do you, is that a plausible yeah, scenario? Yeah, you gotta remember... Th- Yes. And let me explain. So again, she was in like single digits, right? In December. In just six weeks, she went from 2% to 20% in Iowa, 20% to 40, 50%, maybe even a win here in New Hampshire, carrying that into South Carolina. It's all about giving 
America an option, right? And a lot five or six candidates, but having a one-on-one race is a real option for folks to say, do we want the future or do we want the past? Trump, as this disruptor, this anti-establishment candidate in 2016, has done a 180. Right now, he's just this establishment guy that's catering up to the U.S. Senate because he doesn't want to hold them accountable and to the Congress uh, uh, men and women and, and saying, look, whatever you want to do is fine. Just just support me. Nikki bucks that trend. She wants term limits. She says they shouldn't get paid unless they do their job. Right. I mean, she wants to hold Washington accountable. And that's that's a very powerful message coming out of all three of these early states. If she can't, though, even win in the state where she was governor, I mean, wh- what is the... I understand, I understand the momentum argument, but at a certain point, doesn't that momentum, I mean, even if she's still gaining momentum, that still not doesn't mean she's winning anywhere. Well, again, we'll have to see how, how South Carolina plays out. That's a month from now, right? All we're focused on is the next 24 hours. If we have a really high voter turnout, I think she's going to surprise a lot of people here. The polls are always wrong in New Hampshire. I mean, the same polls that said I was going to lose by 11 points, you know, I end up winning by two points the very next day. So you just can't trust the polls here. It's about the voters and the turnout and the energy. I mean, we'll see where that, where that is. I, I feel very good. Our Secretary okay. of State uh, usually makes pretty darn good predictions, and he's pre- predicted a record turnout. As you know, the former president has been attacking you, saying you're letting Democrats vote in the Republican primary, which is obviously not true. Only Republicans and independent voters can take a GOP ballot. It's been that way for decades in New Hampshire. Just to explain to the audience, any Democrats who wanted to change their voter registration would have had to do so more than three months ago. Are you concerned about him spreading disinformation, especially if Ambassador Haley has a strong night tomorrow? Yeah, look, his entire campaign is on lies. I mean, literally, this guy's entire campaign is attacking Nikki on lies. And look, I, I think if, if you have to lie to get there, you don't deserve to get there. So all the disinformation he's put out there, you know, we're countering it as much as we possibly can. At the end of the day, the voters in New Hampshire, they're smart. They get engaged. They always go for the kind of that, that next generation candidate. We don't go backwards. We're not here to litigate all the, the chaos and the nonsense for Donald Trump. We're here to provide solutions for America and opportunities for America. And we, as Republicans, want to beat Joe Biden, right? Trump will not be able, I don't think, it'll be kind of a nail-biter if we can beat Joe Biden. Nikki would crush Joe Biden. Nikki would win New Hampshire in the general election and all the swing states and all the other seats that come with it. So to the Republican voters out there, if you want to win, you got to get behind Nikki. And we're tired of losing. We're tired of losers. We're tired of losing Senate and governor seats because of Donald Trump. Hey, thank you for your service, uh, Mr. Trump. You got to move on. The next generation is coming and we bring winners and opportunity for this country. Governor Sununu, I appreciate your time. Thank you. <laughs> you bet, buddy. Be With good. me here are uh, CNN political commentators from across the political spectrum, David Axrod, Bakari Sellers, Kristen Soltis-Anderson, and Scott Jennings. Um, uh, obviously, that interview, I think, was sponsored by Red Bull. <laughs> well, he's, you know, trying to be enthusiastic. He was sponsored by Bull something. I mean, if the bar were lowered anymore, we'll need a shovel to find it. I mean, to finish a strong second out of a two-person race. Well, it's not what he was saying. It's not what he was saying a, a few weeks ago. And it's, I have to say, it's the first time I've ever heard a governor of New Hampshire say, don't pay that much attention to what New Hampshire does. There are all these other states that were, are more important. Uh, look, there's um, also no sign in South Carolina that, she, well, that she's actually on the way to get bludgeoned and crushed in South Carolina. So I don't really know what the optimism is. Uh, Nikki Haley is a fighter. And let me just say, when she won governor in 2010, nobody expected her to win governor. She beat the lieutenant governor. She beat the attorney general. She beat Gresham Baird. She beat all the boys, right? So she has done this before. She has a track record, so she probably has some sense 
that this can be accomplished again. My question to the people smarter than I, which I guess is probably just you on this panel, Anderson, but I'll toss it out there is... Man, <laughs> early for that. No, it's a little early. <laughs> no, it's, it's what is, I mean, what is a win for Nikki Haley? Does she have to beat Donald Trump or can she come in in the 40s with Donald Trump and actually have a successful well, I think she has to beat Donald Trump, but I think the bar has been lowered so much that that would actually be a surprising enough outcome to keep things interesting. Mm. I, I agree that it does not look like the path goes much further past New Hampshire. But at this point, I mean, one week ago, we were talking about Iowa. Is she going to come in second? What's, and the, the air just got so let out of the balloon over the last week that now if she actually does pull off a win here, I think people this will be surprised. diabolical plan. I'll tell you one thing. To say, to say that she came out of Iowa with momentum... I think is a little bit of a stretch. Everybody saw what happened in Iowa. She was playing for a second. She didn't get a second. The guy who did get second already has dropped out. Uh, you know, he's right that polling is a little tricky in New Hampshire because of this factor of you don't know which independent voters are actually going to participate. But there seems to be a kind of unanimity of polling coming at the end here. I'll ask you, but, you know, if uh, if she were to win this, I would be stunned. I think the sort of consensus is mid-teens is likely. I think she could lose by more than that. And if she does, she has a decision to make. What exactly is the well, benefit of going to your home state and getting mamboed there? And if she wins, it would be on the strength of non-Republicans. I mean, that's the only way to win here is for independent non-Republican voters to show up in big numbers. But, it, you know, here's a newsflash. It's not going to be non-Republicans who decide who the Republican nominee right. for president is going to be. But Iowa actually served a purpose. I mean, and I think what Iowa did, particularly for Democrats, but I think it also did for Nikki Haley, is give a renewed sense of hope. Because only 50,000 people voted for the former president of the United States. It wasn't as if he had people just hanging out, falling out the polling centers. We see his uh, rallies in New Hampshire, where in 2016 he had tens of thousands of people, or 2020, tens of thousands of people, and today it's not that anymore. And so if you only have 50,000 votes of people, you, you don't even get 50% in, in a state. Yeah, well, that gives people a sense of hope. I, I, you know, I, I sort of agree with you on this. I think he, tomorrow could be sort of the apex of his journey here, because once he gets outside of the Republican Party, it gets more difficult, and mm -hmm. that's Partly why Nikki Haley has some some little gas of life left. The CNN poll of New Hampshire Republican voters' choice without DeSantis because Trump has a sizable lead over Haley. Who do you think benefits in terms of of DeSantis's relatively small share? It seems to be Trump. It certainly is Trump. Um, for the most part, m far more DeSantis voters have seemed to have gone to him. But the other thing that's a real challenge for Haley is that the types of DeSantis voters who are more likely to go to Trump are the ones who are the most fired up, the most diehard, the most likely to participate. Just like in Iowa, one of the reasons why Donald Trump overperformed expectations there is his coalition was the diehards. They were the people that were going to turn out in the once-a-decade snowstorm to go to those caucuses. Now, we don't have a once-a-decade once-in-a-decade snowstorm happening in New Hampshire tomorrow, I don't believe. I'll have to check with the weather folks, but <laughs> it's still a problem that her coalition is the less enthusiastic. Yes, and you talk to people on the ground in Iowa, and what you hear 
despite these predictions of the Secretary of State of a record turnout is there are no signs. There's not a lot of, you know, you, you're a Hampshire. politician. You know when things are ginned up. You know when there's, and, and there's, that's not the feel on the ground there. And if it's just the diehards who come out, those diehards well, are more Trump than, actually, than Haley. That's actually counter to South Carolina. And I think Nikki Haley knows that. Because people have had Trump signs up in South Carolina since 2016. Yeah. They literally have not taken them down. Six, five out of the seven United States congressmen, Jim Clyburn being one and Ralph Norman being the other, are the only two that have not come out and endorsed Nikki Haley for governor. I mean, Nick, uh, uh, Donald Trump for president of the United States. And Nikki Haley was the former governor. I'm interested to see. She flew all, uh, he flew all of these former or and current elected officials up. The governor of South Carolina... Tim Scott, the Speaker of the House, the Treasurer, he flew them all up to New Hampshire to show that the race is over. Yeah, he's trying to he, he's trying to put a depressant view on this, which is this is a foregone conclusion, and he doesn't want to have another contested state. He's trying to close the door tomorrow night, and that really is the closing message to Republicans. Mm. Close the door for me, and we'll get on to Joe Biden. All right, thanks, everyone. Coming next, John King in his 360 series all over the map, talking to voters one-on-one about who they're supporting, why, and how their thoughts have evolved over the campaign that ends for them just hours from now. Later, Israel, Gaza, breaking news on a possible ceasefire proposal and hostage deal, but one with some remarkable provisions. Hamas leaders go free. More on that ahead. Grief is a human experience, and the care we receive should be, too. Evernorth Behavioral Health ensures all members have access to live, specialized support in person or virtually with a 100% follow-up commitment to make sure they get the help they need. There's always a person there, guiding your employees using data-driven risk monitoring tools so bottled-up feelings don't turn into further suffering. With Evernorth's wide range of behavioral solutions, care can be personalized, simple, and more accessible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash grief support. All There Is with Anderson Cooper is supported by Evernorth Health Services. Grief is a human experience. Shouldn't the care we receive feel human too? That's why Evernorth Behavioral Health ensures all members have access to live, specialized support anytime, in person or virtually, with a 100% follow-up commitment to make sure that they get the help that they need. So no matter what stage of grief your employees may be in, there's always a person ready to listen. Stressful times can lead many to bottle up complex feelings, especially at work. 59% of those suffering say nothing. This can have unexpected and serious mental and physical health implications. And with Evernorth's data-driven risk monitoring tools, they can help spot challenges early and step in to guide individuals to care before they undergo any more suffering. Each person's grief is as unique as they are which is why Evernorth offers a wide range of personalized behavioral solutions to meet the needs of every member that they serve. Learn more at evernorth.com slash grief support. When New Hampshire voters start casting ballots less than four hours from now, many will have already met the candidates in person, some more than once, and that goes double for political reporters. Reporters like CNN's John King, whose journey all over the map tonight is a reintroduction to some New Hampshire residents that he visited earlier in the campaign. Take a look. Late morning off the dock. Gone maybe one day, maybe two or more. That's where your fish comes from. Andrew Konchek's job depends on the water and the weather. Yeah, it's a little colder. Definitely a little colder. But, uh, you know, you get, you get used to it. Ilana Renee drops these gill nets overnight, pulls them out in the morning. Konchek was likely Trump, but looking at Ron DeSantis. I'd have to, like, look into it more. Now, time to choose. I'm with Trump because he supports fishermen. 
You know, and uh, this obviously is my livelihood. Loyal to Trump despite stuff that offends him. I don't like the way that he speaks sometimes. He can be a little ignorant and rude. Loyal to Trump despite a wife who backs Nikki Haley. When you hang your Trump flag, what does she say? She said I was ruining Christmas and wanted me to take it down. And uh, she took it down and then I put it back up. Pete Burdett's Haley sign is surrounded by snow now. Same spot as when we visited in September. Haley was a long shot then. Perhaps the only shot to stop Trump now. She has Trump's attention. Well, she certainly does. I think there's a very real opportunity for Nikki to squeak out a percentage point on top of Trump. And wouldn't that shake the rafters? To Burdett, a no-brainer. Who really can beat Biden? Who lost to Biden last time? Trump did. The possibility is obvious, but so are the challenges. Trouble winning over Chris Christie voters because she says she would pardon Trump. Trouble winning over independents like Stanley Tremblay. Tremblay told us in September his disgust with both parties makes him a likely third party voter in November. He could still help Haley Tuesday, but took a break from trivia night at his Nashua brewery to make clear he won't. I know you're not a Trump fan, fair? Yep, fair. If you came off the sidelines, you could help Nikki Haley. I could, I could. But you don't see it as worth it, why? Um, because I don't really, I don't feel like I trust her enough yet um, to be able to give her my vote. Trump's resilience infuriates his critics. Yes, many supporters imitate his crude tactics and repeat his lies. But it's not that simple. Who won the 2020 election? Oh, it was Biden. Debbie Katsanos is an accountant, voted for Bill Clinton twice, but is a Trump Republican now. What are the one or two things you want the federal government to do ASAP? Close the border and get this economy going. Not a Joe Biden fan. He's gotten been caught in a lot of lies. I didn't like him as a politician. Got caught in a lot of lies. Yep. Um, Trump's not known as the world's greatest truth teller. No. No. Nope. So, so why is it disqualifying for Biden, but it's okay for Trump? I don't like politicians. And I don't think Trump's, I don't think one term made him a politician because I still, I don't think he plays the game. That is the code Trump critics have yet to crack. His support among those who don't deny election results, those who don't like the drama, but do like the policy. I know he'll fix the border, he'll work on the economy. With Trump, I was doing pretty good. I was able to save more. The more north you go, the more New Hampshire voters on the Trump train. Devin McIver works construction, turning giant slabs of rock into gravel. This is all the prep work before the busy season. In 2008, an Obama voter, a Trump supporter since the 2016 primary here. If he gets convicted, of mishandling classified documents. You can go to jail for that. Then he goes to jail. I guess he won't be president. Yes, a Trump voter, but with eyes wide open. He is definitely different. Sometimes he's not his own best friend, but he's different. But that's what I was getting at when I was asking you about the price of admission. I mean, yeah, there's a, there's a lot extra that comes with it. It's a show. And that doesn't bother you? No, no, because we have other branches of government to deal with it. They can keep him in line. He can't have everything he wants. McIver makes $40,000 a year. Just enough, he says, to take care of his family and save a little. Another Trump tax cut for his boss, he says, would be worth all the Trump chaos. If the business climate is better towards people like him, I do better. Because if you hit him harder with taxes, takes away from me. Andrew
Andrew Konchek shares that same blue-collar bottom line. You think it's over if he wins here? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Trump, he believes, will win the primary, win in November, and save his job. <laughs> He's kind of a bully, I'll give you that. But you think he fights for you? I do. No. Yep. So it's worth all the drama if it keeps him on the water. John, it's fascinating to hear those voters, how they were and, and where they are now. And a lot of them, as you said, had their eyes wide open on, on Trump. You hear some of them said they want Trump to fix the economy. What is the economic reality, at least generally in New Hampshire? Right. This is the frustration for the Biden campaign that they can't break through. These are Trump voters. But still, let's just look at some of the numbers, Anderson. The New Hampshire unemployment rate has always been below the national average. It wasn't bad a year ago. It's even better now. 2.3 percent in the last state report. That is a historically low unemployment rate. That means a strong economy, right? Well, look at this. What's the price of gas? You think about New England. Forgive me turning my back a second. I just want to stretch this out. A year ago, it was 3.30 a gallon. Right now, it's $3.03 a gallon. So again, getting better. But this is the number that's worth watching on. Let me get rid of this off the screen here. This is, this is what still aches in the heart of these voters. I'm going to stretch this out because, yes, if you look at the year-to-year inflation right now, things are getting better. 2.6% in the last year prices have risen. But this is what sticks with these voters. If you are making 30, 40, 50, or $60,000 a year, and you were paying 6% inflation or more a year ago, that means you still have your old car. You didn't go to Disneyland. You stopped saving money. You probably started dipping into your savings to pay for grocery, to pay for fuel and stuff. So that is still a hangover effect. Uh, can Joe Biden, by the general election, convince voters to focus on that number? Not that number, maybe. But at the moment, they think the economy needs work. And I know it's cyclical. Economists would say it's not all Biden's fault. You know, he inherited the economy and all that. But that's their life. That's, that's still their hangover and their experience. John King, appreciate him. Thank you. Coming up next, breaking news, an Israeli ceasefire proposal and the potentially controversial part of it, Hamas leaders might get to leave Gaza. Also, our best look yet at the network of tunnels beneath the territory and the grim accommodations Israeli forces say they found inside some of them for holding humans captive. We have breaking news on the Israel-Hamas war. Axios is reporting tonight that Israel has offered a two-month pause in fighting in exchange for the release of all hostages held in Gaza. Israel believes 132 people are still there, with 104 of them thought to be still alive. Now, this would be the longest break in fighting Israel has offered Hamas. Then a short time ago, our Alex Marquardt got some exclusive reporting on a proposal involving freedom for senior Hamas leaders. Alex joins us now with details. So what have you learned about this proposal? Well, Anderson, this is an extraordinary proposal from Israel, which, of course, has vowed to completely destroy Hamas. Uh, what I've been told by two separate officials uh, who are aware of the discussions going on about a broader ceasefire, which would see uh, Israeli hostages released as well, is that Israel has proposed that senior leaders of Hamas leave the Gaza Strip. Now, that would be just incredible to think about, that Israel would essentially allow the orchestrators, the architects of October 7th, the deadliest attack in Israeli history uh, to simply walk away. Uh, I'm told that this is something that was raised by the head of Israeli intelligence, David Barnea, when he met with his American counterpart, Bill Burns, the director of the CIA, as well as the Qatari prime minister last month. It was raised again uh, when Secretary of State Antony Blinken was in Doha earlier this month. Uh, this is something that uh, is almost certainly not going to happen. Uh, but at the same time, Anderson, it really does highlight the fact that Israel has made uh, relatively little inroads when it comes to 
dismantling and destroying Hamas. You have the most senior leadership of Hamas uh, that is still alive, still believed to be in those tunnels. Uh, you have around 70 percent of the Hamas fighting force by uh, by Israel's own estimation still uh, on the battlefield. Now, of course, this could also benefit Israel if these Hamas leaders were to leave. It would weaken uh, Hamas in the Gaza Strip. It would take away their leadership and it would allow uh, Israel to target Hamas leaders uh, wherever they go. And Israel has said repeatedly that they intend to uh, go, go around the world uh, and, and killing, kill Hamas leaders because of October 7th. Anderson. Is there a sense of how likely it is that Hamas would accept those terms? Well, from the American and international officials I've spoken with, it's extremely unlikely, they say. Uh, Secretary Blinken was told by the Qatari prime minister that something like this is never going to happen. The leaders who are talking about Anderson are Yahya Sinwar. He's the head of Hamas in Gaza. There's Mohammed Dave, you can see there on the screen as well. He's the head uh, of the, uh, the military wing. Dave's deputy, Marwan Issa. These men are true believers. They are religious zealots. They're ideologues. And so officials I speak with believe uh, that they want to essentially die fighting against their sworn enemy. There is one situation who Aaron David Miller, an analyst you and I both know well, uh, raised uh, the, that Sinwar could leave if uh, Israel agreed to release all of the Palestinian prisoners, some of the uh, toughest uh, and deadliest prisoners in Israeli prisons. Then, uh, Miller told me, Sinwar might consider it, but that, is, uh, that, it, that possibility is a long way off, and essentially Netanyahu rejected as much just yesterday. Anderson. How much pressure is there on Netanyahu to, to find a resolution? An extraordinary uh, amount of pressure, and it's growing by the day. I was in Israel just last month speaking with hostage families. They're protesting all the time. They're essentially saying uh, to Netanyahu, you have to do whatever you can uh, to bring them home. So this is something, this is pressure that is only growing by the day. Uh, Netanyahu knows he has to do something, but at the same time, Anderson, he has vowed that this war will continue for many months to come. Anderson. Alex Marquardt, thanks so much. Now to Gaza and the discovery of Hamas tunnels where the IDF says hostage Hostages were held. Seen as Nick Robertson is there. A girl's dreams of her lost life, carefully remembered in red crayon. A house, flowers, and the sun peaking between mountains. Discovered 60 feet below the Gazan city Han Yunis, in what the IDF say was a half mile long maze of tunnels used to imprison hostages. In this space, we found evidence that indicate the stay of hostages, including the paintings drawn by the five-year-old girl, Emilia Aloni, along with other hostages. Images of the tunnel complex newly released by the IDF amid growing pressure to save hostages reveals the hell they are enduring. Beyond the cage door, a soiled mattress strewn on the floor. Further inside the cell, a toilet. One of five underground hostage dungeons, the IDF say, that held about 20 hostages at different times. Emilia and her mother Danielle were released late November, long before these latest tunnels were discovered. This tunnel we're going in here is one where some of the hostages were held. A week before the new video release, the IDF took us in a similar tunnel complex, close to where they say Amelia and Danielle were held. So we came down a metal ladder. We've come down one flight of stairs. We're going down a second flight of stairs here, a double flight it looks like. And down here, command and control wires 
running all the way down. It's a deep, deep system. How deep are we underground, do you think, right now? At the moment, we're more or less uh, between 10 to 15 meters underground. 10 to 15 meters. Yeah. And now we're going down another level, down more steps. What are we looking at here? This is a, a small room. Okay. With, with some kind of air ventilation yeah. system. So an air ventilation end. system that goes up and yeah, a metal frame around the door. These metal frames. Yeah. This can be, as much as this is a small room, this is how the different uh, um, cages that they put the, the kidnapped. So they were held in cages. In cages, yeah. Hidden and utterly cut off. Just to give you an idea of how humid it is down here, the camera lens is fogging up. It's hard to imagine the life of a hostage stuck down here day after day, week after week. It is hot, it is humid. These latest images released by the IDF capture the conditions, but not the shirt-soaking claustrophobia they induce. The tunnel now beyond use, blown up by the IDF, eliminated from the ongoing search for the remaining hostages. Nick Robertson joins us now from, from Tel Aviv. Is there a sense for how much longer uh, the, the military offensive in the south, in, in Khan Yunus, is expected to last? Yeah, I think the military's assessment is that the tunnels and the complexity has made it much harder and will take longer. That was uh, General uh, Ron Goldfuss who took us down the tunnels there. He's a division commander, the biggest division that's ever existed in the Israeli military. And he told us that trying to fight Hamas in this environment is like trying to play Tetris because you move one piece, but things are happening on the other side of the, the cube. Underground, in essence, in the tunnels, you can't easily um, know where the enemy is. So that's slowing things down. And the IDF has just announced that their major military operations ongoing in Khan Yunus are expected to last now at least several more days. Bad weather is on its way. The fighting is partly focused, it appears, around two hospitals in the west of Khan Yunus. A doctor in one of those hospitals described the situation there. Um, in, it was dire that. Uh, people couldn't couldn't get out of the area. So um, the military operations continue and uh, the, the fighting brigades of, of Hamas say that they are engaging with the IDF. So it, it's, it's potentially very deadly as well there right now. Nick Robertson, thanks very much. Coming up, Vice President Kamala Harris in an exclusive interview with our Laura Coates about the campaign ahead. James Carville, a veteran of New Hampshire and the White House campaigns, joins us with his thoughts on what this race is going to look like for Democrats. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. As the former president prepares for a potential strong night in New Hampshire and he and President Biden size up a possible rematch of 2020, my colleague Laura Coates has a rare one-on-one interview with Vice President Kamala Harris. The full interview airs tonight at 11 p.m. Here's a preview of how the vice president says they'll handle the former president's repeated lie that the 2020 election was stolen. There is someone right now, if the polling is correct, has 91 counts, four different jurisdictions with different indictments and different case, cases against him, 
who could very well be the Republican nominee. And yet he is attacking you and President Biden for election interference. He believes what, what the Justice Department is doing is only attributed to you, but also is election interference. What is your reaction to those who believe his statements? Okay, well, let's start with the facts. You just outlined them. Mm -hmm. So actually, I don't need to repeat them um, in terms of what has have been the allegations about the former president. And I do believe that the American people care about rule of law and care about speaking truth and acknowledging truth. I do believe in my travels around our country that, for example, a statement that suggests that insurrectionists who attacked our capital and, and committed acts of violence should not be called patriots, as the former president has done. Should um, they be called candidates? Well, the people who attacked on January 6th should not be called patriots. The, what they did is they attacked our capital, they committed acts of violence, and they need to be taken into account and held accountable for those acts. So these are just facts, and um, we are going to see what happens in terms of any cases that are being litigated in a court of law. That interview airs tonight at 11 p.m. In a moment, I'll be joined by veteran Democratic strategist James Carville to talk about President Biden's strategy in the campaign and tomorrow night's New Hampshire primary as well. While polling has Nikki Haley in second place, Bill Clinton's 1992 campaign proved that second place in some cases in New Hampshire can be a springboard to the nomination and victory. Particularly when you give a now famous speech like he did six days before the primary, the Elks Club in Dover, New Hampshire. They say, I'm on the road because other people have questioned my life after years of public service. I'll tell you something. I'm going to give you this election back. And if you'll give it to me, I won't be like George Bush. I'll never forget who gave me a second chance. And I'll be there for you till the last dog dies. I'm joined now by James Carville, a senior strategist on the 1992 Clinton campaign. Um, did he come up with that line, by the way? Do you do you recall how? Where did, did, did... 100%. So he called me today. It was 32 years ago today, the 1992 New Hampshire primary. And I was at that I was at that meeting and, and the last dog died. I, I, I thought I was pretty good at these kind of southern rural state statements. <laughs> but I, that's the first time I'd ever heard that one. But it was a pretty... By the way, did you see the political skill being exhibited up there? You know, if you think about, you know, all the stuff that was going on and him involving the audience like he did and making it about them as much as about him. It just, I just wish people could play the game like this, still play the game like this, because he was the best that ever was. You, you heard a little bit of a Kamala Harris there. Do you think the, the Biden team knows how to run this particular race, assuming it's President Trump? Uh, one of the things I would say, the Biden team is very, very, very experienced. Uh, Mike Donlan is one of the most experienced and best hands in, in, in this business. I've known Mike oh, since the mid-80s. Uh, you know, that it's not. I don't think it's the sort of strategy. It's the economy's just got to keep kicking in for these guys. And I think you just need to stay focused, disciplined. I follow them. I talk a lot about infrastructure, do a lot of infrastructure events. But there's nothing wrong with, with, with the, the people around the president or his TV people or posters, anything like that. It, it's just a tough slog uh, coming up and we all got to get on board and get behind this thing. How concerned are you about, uh, you know, a, a Robert Kennedy Jr., uh, other candidates? Very. And I mean, if you look at this, there's a real market for some of these third 
third, third party candidates. And strategically, one of the things that the Biden campaign is going to try to pull off the uh, post Labor Day is to get people focused on on what really is going to matter. And, and to a large extent, that's Sob and Trump. But right now, you can't look at current polling and not conclude that there's a, a substantial market for candidates other than the two presumptive nominees. It's just impossible to do. I, I want to play a clip of former president speaking to a New Hampshire crowd this past Friday, uh, where he appears to confuse then House Speaker Nancy Pelosi with Ambassador Haley. And the press never reports the crowds, you know. By the way, they never report the crowd on January 6th. You know, Nikki Haley, Nikki Haley, Nikki Haley, you know, they, did you know they destroyed all of the information, all of the evidence, everything, deleted and destroyed all of it, all of it, because of lots of things. Like Nikki Haley is in charge of security. We offered her 10,000 people, soldiers, National Guard, whatever they want. They turned it down. They don't want to talk about that. These are very dishonest people. I'm wondering what you make of of the, I mean, not only what he said, but just in general, the campaign he's running right now. Well, to some extent, he's actually, his campaign, from what I hear, is actually more professional than it was in in, in 2016. I mean, they actually had an operation in Iowa. They got an operation in New Hampshire. Uh, Look, I'm a little older than President Trump, and sometimes I get names a little confused. What I'm startled by as I see that again is how many times he said Nikki Haley. You Mm. you can understand somebody saying, uh, you know, confusing Anderson Cooper and Will Blitzer one time, but if you you confused it seven or eight times, that's pretty weird. But, But Anderson, the thing, there's so many things about Trump that the voters don't know. They don't know that a jury found him in the words of the judge that he raped a woman in the common parlance of the word rape. Rape is not a good thing. Another court of competent jurisdiction determined that he was a business fraud. I think until we get that to where 90, 95% of the people in this country understand exactly who Donald Trump is, exactly what he's done, not allegations, Finding in courts of competent jurisdictions, I think we got still got a lot of upside to go here. Yeah, really but isn't do. that I mean, that information is all out there? Is sort of baked in. I mean, isn't it just a lot of people think, well, the court system is rigged against him. It's you know unfair well, juries, democratic. I, I don't think. I think we think. I think we think it's out there. I think we think that if we say something, that people know it. It is not understood until it's said a thousand times and repeated a thousand times. I, I, I would be stunned if half the people in this country understand that a jury, in the words of Judge Kaplan, who's a 30-year-old, one of the most experienced and respected federal judges in the United States, said in the common parlance of the word, the jury found that he raped this woman. I don't think people know that. I think, oh, it's just kind of back and forth, and they say this, and some Democrat says that, and some Republican says this. No, I don't think that at all. And I think that's a failure on the communications part of uh, the party, a failure sometimes of the press to think, well, we already reported that. That's, a, <laughs> that's, not, any, that's not any news. Mm-hmm. People don't know that. They think it's just a political back and forth. And that's not what the case is here. And people have to be made aware of that and made aware of it repeatedly. James Carville, thank you. Good to have you on. Thank you.
Latest on the former president's legal sagas, including the controversy surrounding Fulton County, Georgia DA, Fonnie Willis. She's prosecuting the former president, as you know, for trying to overturn the election. But her relationship with the man she appointed to lead the case is now threatening to jeopardize the whole thing. That's next. Two key developments in the legal trials involving the former president. He's now scheduled to head to a New York courtroom the day after the New Hampshire primary. His expected testimony in the second defamation trial involving writer Eugene Carroll was pushed back two days because a juror was sick. Also tonight, new information on the embattled Georgia prosecutor behind the RICO indictment of the former president and 18 others for trying to subvert the 2020 election. Her relationship with the man she appointed to lead the case now under scrutiny. Nick Valencia has more. I will issue a stay. Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis given a pass for now in a case that threatens to derail her criminal case against former President Donald Trump. On Monday, a Georgia judge put on hold the DA's testimony in the divorce proceedings of her lead prosecutor, Nathan Wade. The testimony sought by Wade's estranged wife, Jocelyn, after allegations of a romantic affair surfaced between Willis and her husband. Do you think that Fonnie Willis is the cause of this divorce? can't say that right now. But Willis still in the spotlight after court filings from Wade's wife show Nathan Wade's credit card charges for Willis, his boss, to accompany him on at least two out-of-state trips. The main concern is were county funds being misused or converted to personal gain. Fulton County Commissioner Bob Ellis, a Republican who chairs the county audit committee, opening an inquiry and asking the Fulton DA to turn over contracts with special prosecutors, including invoices and payments. It's inappropriate for an elected official to be in a romantic relationship with, some, with a contractor who they selected. Now Wade's estranged wife said in a filing she wants to hear from Willis directly. And in the Trump election interference case, a Fulton County judge has ordered Willis to respond to the allegations of a conflict of interest by next week and said he will hold a hearing on the issue February 15th. The controversy prompting Republicans to circulate comments Willis made as she campaigned for the DA's office in 2020. I certainly will not be choosing people to date that work under me. So far, Willis has not directly addressed the alleged affair, but recently defended her decision to name Wade the special prosecutor in Trump's Georgia case. Is it that some will never see a black man as qualified, no matter his achievements? Jocelyn Wade's attorney saying Willis is trying to hide behind the shield of her position. I have reason to believe that there is a relationship going on or else I wouldn't be pursuing this line of discovery. That would be inappropriate. Nick Valencia joins us now from outside the Fulton County Courthouse in Atlanta. So what's the latest on the prosecutor's divorce records being unsealed? Well, we're still waiting for the Cobb County Clerk's Office to release those records, and we know among the documents are financial records, so the delay could have something to do with redacting some of those lines in the financial records. Uh, look, there's a lot of anticipation about what details are in these records and if it could further prove this alleged romance between Wade and Willis. It is clear, though, that at the very least, Anderson, this is a huge distraction from the facts of the case. And as I mentioned in the piece, the judge, the judge overseeing the uh, criminal probe here in Georgia has set next week as a deadline for Fonnie Willis to respond in writing to the allegations and February 15th for a hearing to mention or uh, to focus on these claims. Anderson. Nick Valencia, thanks very much. Next, the U.S. Navy identifies the two Navy SEALs lost at sea during a mission that, according to U.S. Central Command, was to seize illegal missile components being transported on a ship from Iran to Yemen. Details ahead. The Defense Department has released the names of two Navy SEALs who were lost earlier this month during a nighttime raid on a ship in the Arabian Sea. 
U.S. Central Command said the small vessel was carrying Iranian-made missile parts bound for Houthi militants in Yemen. 27-year-old Special Operator Second Class Nathan Gage Ingram was killed, along with 37-year-old Special Operator First Class Christopher Chambers. The SEALs were boarding the ship in eight-foot swells when one fell in the water. The other, following protocol, jumped in to attempt a rescue. Sunday, after 10 days unsuccessfully searching for both men, the Navy declared them dead. In a statement, a Naval Special Warfare Commander called both SEALs exceptional warriors, cherished teammates, and dear friends to many. Our thoughts are with their families and their friends tonight. The news continues. The Source with Caitlin Collins starts now. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.